Hello, and welcome to Design is Everywhere, the new weekly podcast from the Design Museum. It's Thursday, July 9th, 2020. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano, the founder and executive director of the Design Museum. And I'm joined by your other host, Liz Pollack. She's our amazing vice president. Hey, Liz. Hi, Sam. And hi, everyone. This week, we're talking about design and telemedicine. Since the dawn of telecommunications technology, people have been figuring out ways to use it in healthcare. And of course, now that we have high-speed internet access, this is expanding and we're seamlessly incorporating video technology. The possibilities for connecting with healthcare remotely are really interesting. Plus with COVID-19 still impacting so many and stressing our healthcare system, telemedicine could be the way that many of us receive care in the weeks, months, and years ahead. So we'll dive into it all with our special guest co-host, George White, the Chief Innovation Officer at Cantina. He's always thinking about this kind of stuff. And we have a special guest for George, Liz, and I to interview. We'll have Youssef Saleh, the founder and CEO of Ava Robotics, on to chat about Ava and how the robot is being used for telemedicine. I'm excited to talk design, technology, and robotics in healthcare. This should be a lot of fun. But first, Liz, what's new at the Design Museum? Yeah, lots as always. Uh, we've received such a warm reception to bringing our We Design exhibition online. If you haven't checked it out yet, we Design brings together creatives from a wide range of backgrounds to examine and celebrate the range of career paths, applications, and impact in design. We feature some really talented designers and their career stories. Check it out on our website, designmuseumeverywhere.org, and click on Exhibitions in the menu. And while you're there, grab tickets for our Design Museum Live event, How to Draw Anything with Spencer Nugent. It's happening tomorrow, July 10th. We're having so much fun with these sketch series where we're able to bring sketching pros to show off their craft and that we can all practice sketching together. We recently had a great sketch event with Michael DeTullo sketching footwear. Here's a clip from Michael. One of the things I always recommend to people that want to learn how to design shoes is to just go find some old shoes in their closet and cut them apart. <laughs> and you'll be surprised how much is, is in there. Shoes are made up out of soft materials, right? Like leather, canvas, meshes. It's a, it's a sheet, it's a 2D material that is cut and folded into a three-dimensional shape. Yeah, that was such a great event with Michael. I had a lot of fun with that. One last thing, I know we've mentioned the print edition of Design Museum Magazine is out. Now the digital version is out as well. So you can now read the magazine on any device, which is something we're really excited about and excited to offer it to our members and subscribers. Okay, let's get into this week's topic. Telemedicine, or more broadly, telehealth, has expanded rapidly in recent years and even more rapidly during COVID-19. Because why would anyone ever wanna sit in a doctor's office waiting room right now when you could simply hop on a website, do a Zoom call, or even just text your doctor instead? With the absolute explosion of connectivity and mobile devices, the possibilities are really fascinating. Telehealth can take limited medical resources, namely doctors and specialists, and expand their reach and capacity. It can increase accessibility to medical advice and care to many, many people, regardless of geographic proximity. There's an incredibly important need for design in every aspect of this experience. Think about the devices, the digital interfaces, virtual interactions, there's a lot to explore. We'll discuss it all with our special guest co-host, George White. He's the Chief Innovation Officer at Cantina, a strategic design and development agency. George has spent most of the last 25 years working to make technology and design that matters. And he's thought a lot about technology and health. So welcome to the show, George. 
Hey, thanks, Sam. It's great to be back. Uh, I'm very excited yes. to have another conversation with you guys. This is this is just mind blown. Love it. I love it. Yeah, it's official. You are our first return guest co-host. I'm so honored. So we're glad you're back hanging with us. Listeners, by the way, if you haven't checked out episode one of Design is Everywhere, George was our guest co-host back then, and we discussed the design community's efforts to respond to COVID-19, which is still one of my favorite episodes. I guess start by maybe giving us an overview of, of what telemedicine means. And, and I kind of use the word telemedicine and telehealth in my intro on purpose, because I don't know if there's a difference. So how, how does it all work? Like what's sort of like the landscape out there? We've been doing some research recently at Cantina about this. And one of the things that you do find is that telemedicine and telehealth are interchangeable in a lot of ways. Um, that said, the landscape is really, really broad. So what most people will be encountering now um, in, the, in the immediate aftermath of COVID and in the changes that we're seeing um, around not being able to basically go into doctor's offices and being forced to do social distancing is that they'll be seeing telemedicine appointments with their primary care physicians or with nurses or with other staff who are basically doing wellness checks or, or um, uh, in some cases, diagnosis or, or even occasionally just treatment checkups. Um, and that's the most common thing. So it's really just connecting via Zoom, having a conversation, right? right? And, mm -hmm. and that's, that's really the basis for what most people will encounter as telehealth. Um, but there's a few different really interesting things that tie into that. Um, there are services like um, uh, Atrius has a, a service called Medically Home, and their whole thing is actually about uh, a treatment for elder care, treatment for cancer patients, longer term, more hospital in the home services, where we've actually taken and unbundled the idea of the ho hospital because you get better outcomes, people feel, feel better, all this other stuff. And they brought in those services home and bringing those services home has meant applying telehealth and teleconnectivity. So you have nurses we're basically doing rounds via digital mm. tools and via, again, that sort of teleconferencing system. So they'll have things like um, connected devices for blood pressure monitoring or your connected scale, whatever is required basically to check your condition. That you just have at your house. That you just have them in your home all the time. And so it's it's not just this level of, of telecommunication, but actually of true telemedicine where, where some of the diagnostic tools that you would have had are now being built into you know, your home environment. Another really interesting case, and this is why I'm fascinated by the space, um, Beth Israel here in, here in Boston, actually, uh, they've got these great things called cows. Cows are computers on wheels. <laughs> and one of the things that they're doing in response to this, this uh, sort of change in behavior, change in pattern, is that they are now bringing those cows in to have consulting on site. So telemedicine oh, wow. isn't just you know, point to point between you and a remote doctor or you and your doctor and someplace else. It's actually happening inside the facility. And they're doing that so doctors don't have to robe or, or, or disrobe or nurses. And they can do those, those types of wellness checks or care where the person who's a specialist who needs to be involved in your care doesn't necessarily have to be physically proximal with you, even though they might be in the same building or in the same cluster of buildings you're in. The hope is that this is cheaper, more efficacious, more widely spread, um, and ultimately that it will lead to a better outcome for everyone in terms of education. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've experienced this a little bit with... Uh, connecting with our pediatrician, right? So for talking about like my son's allergies, and I have to say it was extremely convenient and it saved me a ton of time. If you think about a typical pediatrician visit, I would drive there, I would then wait in the waiting room, I would then get into the next room and then I'd wait there. Then I'd talk <laughs> to the nurse and then I'd wait again and then I'd talk to the doctor and then I'd uh, drive home. So at least two hours, right? Just a simple visit. Mm -hmm. And now, I get a phone call ahead of time, quick, like five minute call with the nurse. 
and then right at the time that it's said for the Zoom call or whatever it is, I talk to them, I get more time with the doctor, right? So I get maybe like a 30 minute conversation, really get to get into it, super personal. Also, I don't have my kids screaming because they don't have to come with <laughs> right. me. And I have this really great conversation. So I had a great experience with it, but I wonder if you could offer up some more scenarios and situations where telehealth is working, but also where it isn't working. So actually one of the things that you talked about as a positive is also a negative for some people. So appointment medicine, um, telehealth is appointment medicine. You have to prearrange all the things. How do you know that both parties will be there at the same time? They're not caught up in something else going in their lives. Um, you know, that the doctor is available, you know, a, consult a consultation runs over. Um, that's a, that's a, a con as well, right? The fact that you need to have all the prerequisites set up, the connectivity needs to be there. The systems need to be there. The computer needs to be there in some cases, the devices need to be there. Um, so that's one problem. Another problem that can occur is training. So, and this is where design actually has a, has a, real big impact. So most of us know how to use a digital thermometer these days. It's not that different from using a thermometer, but a connected digital thermometer might be a little bit different. Um, a connected uh, pulse oximeter device that you put on your finger, very simple to use, but how do you know that data is getting up there and how, do you, how are you making sure it's happening? Um, so it's, so in the moment, there are, there are a lot more things to orchestrate. And so there's a service design element to all of this, of orchestrating all the components and how everyone shows up. Can, yeah, can you talk about that? Yeah. I know Cantina does a lot of service design. Mm -hmm. How do you design a service? Service design uh, is built on the idea of a holistic view of the services delivered. And I'm going to differentiate services from products, right? Services are, uh, they're temporal. They take time over a series of engagements or touch points. Uh, and they involve both the end user, the customer, or whoever is, is taking advantage of the service, and the performers of the service, the staff, the employees, and so on. Um, so when you do service design, what you're looking at is what are those touch points, where are the places and artifacts where people engage, and you're looking at who's involved and what their concerns are. And so that means you're looking at both what happens to the end customer, and there's a lot of focus on CX and customer experience, but there's also what happens to the employees? How do you set the stage so that they feel like they understand what service they're delivering? So it's a, it's a complete holistic view of how a service is crafted and created. It weirdly touches on management consulting and organizational development, because you often have to tell an organization that the people who are doing something need to change their focus or even change who they are. And so that's an uncommon thing to sort of go through the same thing. Okay, great. What are we doing here to make sure that in fact, you know, the right people are doing the right things. So it's a, it's a lot of different tools and, and the way we do it, uh, we have a process definitely, but a lot of it is sort of what we learn changes what, how we actually design. Yeah. So back to kind of telemedicine and thinking about mm -hmm. it in the time of COVID-19, right? I feel like it's so essential right now, mm -hmm. but like you just said, uh, it's actually quite dynamic in how to design for these services that are needed. So I'm interested if you could talk about the need right now, you know, for COVID-19, but also the timeline mm -hmm. here, if we think past COVID-19 and all the work that's going into establishing these new telemedicine programs. The prospects for telemedicine have been around for as long as telecommunications have existed. So 100 years, right? You could have done telemedicine over telegram. It would have been weird, but you could do it. <laughs> um, but why has it changed now? And, and from what we've learned in some of the research that we've been doing is that a big blocker to the acquisition of telemedicine wasn't necessarily um, patient or uh, end user concern. It was actually more about the, the models that uh, existed for providers. So imagine, for instance, you're a hospital and you have 100 beds, 
Your business is to fill that 100 beds. And so it's very hard for you to shift your model to a business where you're actually providing service outside, even if it's better service, even if it's service that, that may actually reduce your costs, it doesn't fit with your economic model. So many providers, uh, for various reasons, have had some reticence to adopt this. I and what, think about this. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's horrifying, right? But what's yeah. really awesome is what COVID has done is forced a conversation. Right. You don't, and, and someone we talked to had, was telling us about this, about the uh, uh, hospital system they were working with that had it, that had had it down. They knew how to build clinics. They knew how to do all this other stuff. And suddenly having to realize that they need to change their business model. But they did. And it's a, it's just as good. It just it was just in that this, I think I even said this our last uh, time we, we met, this crisis has injected energy. And so the, the process here is about how this, this crisis is forcing us to change our assumptions which is in turn forcing us to change how we actually respond. I expect that over the next two or three years, list to your point about timelines, this is a space with a lot of churn, a lot of, of um, possibility, and expect to see more and more and more investment in time and energy in the space. Yeah, well, who, who are the players or providers that are like making it happen now or like quickly getting in um, that we can kind of look at? Best Buy, uh, they, they put a pretty big, uh, uh, dime down on this bet that they're going to actually be able to make telemedicine a thing. And they're, and they're, they're an interesting position because, um, they're a provider of consumer electronics, right? right. But they, they forgot a med medical monitoring service. They're now providing, uh, uh, home health, particularly for things like parents. Like, so, you know, Liz, your kids or Sam, your kids get a fever in the middle of the night. You want to make sure your kids are right. Right. So now you can go, you've got a kit that they've already got you. You, you can go and just, Pull it, plug in the connected monitor, and then the nurse will will see your information. All right. So what you got me thinking about was how is mental health going to start to be part of the diagnostic conversation in a stronger way than in the past? It was all about what are your physical symptoms. I feel like that maybe was a piece of the puzzle that wasn't as present. And I'm wondering if this would actually pivot it oddly as we're not together to actually have more of a conversation. I think there's something to that. I don't really know yet. Um, interestingly, my sister-in-law is a therapist and and has been doing all of her stuff. She's pivoted completely to to a, a telehealth connection with all of her patients. Uh, I think the number I heard was about 25% of her patients or so would like to go back to physical conversations at some point. But I do think that there's there's a huge space for this. I mean, we we have history for this for even kind of weird like things like like think about like suicide hotlines. Mm -hmm. It's a telehealth solution of sorts. Right. Um, but we don't think about it that way, right? I think that there is uh, a lot more space for for this sort of thing, and and weirdly, there may be some places for design in this space as well, right? So technology to help us understand the moods of patients, right? Right now, we kind of rely on how we interact. Are there ways to use technology that might help us to understand how people are feeling and maybe make recommendations on on helping them? Can we see the stresses that they're undergoing? Can we see their blood pressure elevated and all those kind of things in a in the conversation like this? Yeah. yeah. That's cool. I hadn't even thought of that. Um, so the next thing I'm thinking about is around digital privacy and medical records. You know, how does that work? What are the challenges there? It's one of the key concerns people have: transparency, privacy, um, and what happens with my data and who who gets to see it. Um, it is a real big concern. I, you know, I think it's it's one of the you know, we're we're here using a Zoom to kind of have this conversation together. Um, 
how are we sure that the Zoom conversations we're having are secure? Are we using those types of tools? So th there is a real big question about this. Uh, anytime you have a digitally media conversation, you should you should be thinking about privacy and security and, and transparency. Yeah, I mean, back to design. I'd love to you mention it, George, but talk about these opportunities for design. Yeah. It, so obviously, we talked about service design. That's a huge one, right? So designing the services, designing this piece. There is uh, industrial design to be done. There is user experience and UI design to be done. There is technical development to be done to, to create new products. Um, frankly, there's a lot of design research to be done to understand both what practitioners and, and providers need, as well as what patients need. Um, there's almost not an area you can think of where you wouldn't apply design to the aspects that we need. If you're a designer, um, there's a really good chance that there's a space for you to play in this conversation about telehealth and telemedicine. Last question, uh, so one of our past other past guests, uh, Dr. Diana Anderson, she mentioned, uh, we were talking about COVID and environments and she mentioned that we might like add a room to our homes. Like we have a living room, we have a dining room, like maybe in the future we'll have a health room uh, that's, that's like connected to all this stuff. And so I thought that was a really interesting vision. So where do you see this all going in like five, 10, even 15 years? <laughs> so that's got me thinking, it's really interesting. So when you said, you know, health room, my first thought was, well, why a room? Right? I, why is your whole home not helping you with this? And I'll give you an example. Actually, there's a there's a company that's using millimeter wave radar to figure out whether or not elderly people fall down. Right? It's built in your whole. It needs the whole home needs to be smart to be aware of the health condition of of the people that are living inside of it. Um, Amazon's Alexa, uh, actually, a great example of a of a really interesting choice. Alexa and HomePod and Google Home all can help you now understand whether or not you might have COVID. They all have health systems built into them. <laughs> so, so as we make our homes smarter generally, I think that there's an opportunity for, for us to subtly embed uh, telemedicine and telehealth cases right into these systems that we right now are maybe using to turn our lights on and off, but we can yeah. actually go and, and, and transform them into part of a home health connection, home health system. Can we help to design our homes so that they're, that they're ready and available to, like a transformer, turn themselves yeah. into the, 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 uh, the care environment that we need when we need it? And that could that doesn't just apply to, to our traditional thoughts about medicine. Um, it could apply to aging in place and universal design as well. Really cool. Thank you so much, George. This is awesome. Listeners, check out George and his team's work at Cantina. We have the privilege of sharing office space with, well, we did <laughs> before <laughs> COVID. Um, but George and Matt Chisholm invited us and gave us space in their amazing office. And we've always been grateful for that. And I think I could speak for all of us at Design Museum that we miss <laughs> that space very much. Anyway, uh, visit cantina.co uh, to learn all about them and stick around, George. We'd love to have you join our conversation with Yusuf from Ava Robotics. If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's a museum that comes to you wherever you are. That's right. Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone. Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have. Membership starts at just $3 a month and you get access to virtual Design Museum live events, discounts, and our Design Museum magazine sent right to your doorstep. Just go to designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today, and your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum magazine, which will be sent to Design Museum members all over the world. That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community.
And we're back and we're joined by this week's special guest. Yusuf Saleh is the founder and CEO of Ava Robotics. He's a strategic visionary with experience incubating new businesses, driving innovation, and pursuing new markets. Ava is an intelligent telepresence robot that Liz and I have actually had the pleasure of seeing in person at some of our Design Museum events. And I'm really excited to learn how it's being used in telehealth. So Yusuf, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sam. It's a pleasure being here with you. Yeah, thanks so much. Let's start. I wonder if you could introduce our listeners to Ava and just tell us about the robot. The vision of that, that we had was driven by the fact that robots will be part of everyday life in the mm-hmm. workplace. Uh, they'll be yeah. doing many different things. Some might be autonomous, some might be assisted. And uh, we developed this platform from the ground up to fulfill that promise. It's designed to be um, easy to uh, interact with, uh, easy to coexist in the workplace. Um, It has to be safe. It has to be dynamic. It has to adjust to the workplace, not the other way around. And telepresence robot was the first application. Mm-hmm. So what's the, what does it look like uh, and what's it like to interact with? Yes. So uh, the robot is designed to, we didn't want to be a humanoid, kind of be a little bit freaky, but, but <laughs> yes. it's designed to really uh, give you that remote presence. In fact, when we talk about what we bring with a telepresence robot, I personally try not to use the word telepresence as much, even though I'm using it a lot today. <laughs> it's really teleporting. Right, so we right. believe that what we're bringing is the ability to teleport people to places. So when I say that, what comes to your mind besides you know thinking this is science fiction? Um, it is reality. Today we do it. Today we are able to teleport people. So to do that, it's going to have a charisma, right? When I am somewhere else, it's going to try to represent me. So the size, the height, the you know the 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 quality of the audio, the video, uh, the ability to be immersed that I could do different things. Yeah, that's what I was, how I think about the design because it's very sleek. It's very cool. It's kind of like a co- like a column, you know, with the display. And for as beautiful as the design is, it does kind of fade away when you're interacting. We had, uh, so at our Workplace Innovation Summit, for our listeners here, Ava was there and we had people teleporting to the conference and attending. And I, I also wonder if you could describe a little bit just about the, you mentioned about the height movement, um, but the movement itself and uh, how it kind of moves around, what, what's it like for the actual user of the, the teleported person <laughs> to use the robot? You could move in any um, uh, direction, movement, sidestepping, just like you would as a person in that space. So with Ava being originally created for an office context, what opened the door up for the opportunity to use the robot in healthcare? Yeah, um, just a tweak on the way uh, your phrase, uh, uh, Ava was designed for the office. Ava was designed from the ground up to be in the workplace. Doesn't mean office. In fact, we have it deployed today in hospitals, in elder care, in office spaces, in labs, in manufacturing. Um, so it's designed to where 
people work. In fact, one of our partners did take the robot into the healthcare space. Uh, but during COVID-19, we were pulled into this uh, market like never seen before. One of the doctors at Beth Israel, um, they had the robot in their um, IT department. And when he found out about it, he said he wants it in the emergency room the next day. The next day, the robot arrived there. And that same day, within hours, the doctors were using it. The nurses were using it. You know, there, there were applications the way they used it I never thought of. The first thing comes to your mind, like, okay, so you could go see a patient without walking into the room. So, right, it reduced the infectious uh, uh, probability there. We've seen um, examples where even when they want to go in, right, they're, they're putting their PPE, right, they're getting themselves ready to walk in. But it's time sensitive. They need somebody to assess the situations right then and there. It's not about eliminating going in. It's about right. how quickly can you go in. Um, what we found out is some doctors, and by the way, my daughter works at, at a different hospital. Um, and she was quarantined for 14 days when one of her colleagues had uh, tested positive. She was perfectly fine. But yet right. she's home. Right. She was home and she's 100 percent fine. She could participate. She could help. Yeah. I'm just thinking about like doctors having to put on their PPE to go in a room and then to go into the next room, taking that all off and like refreshing. Yeah. Versus so, I, going in with the robot. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I got my eyes you know wide open when I saw some of the examples, because it's not just you have to put the PPE. You actually need help to put the Mm. Right. So you have more than one person trying to put this stuff on. Right. So does the robot need to get like cleaned in between if they're going from one COVID patient to the next? Like, do they have some PPE? <laughs> so it's designed to simply just like any surface, you could disinfect, you know, by a wipe. You wipe, the, you wipe it and you're done. Um, mm -hmm. However, the difference is um, in the the. Uh, a device like a robot, it's uh, even if you don't disinfect it, it's only if you touch it, then you, right? It doesn't breathe. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So in theory, all the doctors could be sitting at home and <laughs> going in and seeing patients throughout the day. Have you heard of any cases where one of the things I think is really interesting about the teleportation notion is um, we often think about these things in a one-to-one -one case, right? We're in a mm -hmm. teleconference, we're talking, yes. but the robot actually represents multiple people in a context, right? Uh, you can have one person teleport away from the robot and another one teleport right in. And the robot doesn't have to physically change its its aspect or its thing to be able to serve that same person. I was thinking about that in terms of right, right. what you're talking about, about the idea that, you know, even while I'm still getting ready to go in, I may be doing things. Have you seen teams kind of uh, basically piggybacking or riding on each other's shoulders <laughs> in, in, uh, via the robot? In the healthcare, right? You always have not just one doctor, and not just shifting, sometimes you might need consultation. You might need a second opinion, or you might need different specialists. We designed it that I could take you all to go visit a patient. I could have multiple mm. people at the same time, not just taking turns. If I am here and I say, you know what, I need my colleague to get an opinion from, you know, on something, they could join me on that same call and the patient could interact with both of us at the same time. So I know because I've also seen Ava robots yeah, up close, yeah. you know, there's sort of a, the, uh, to list your point before about being um, 
designed for being in the workplace, which I think is, right. is a great way to think about it. But different workplaces have different needs, right? And they have different concerns. And I know that at one point, for instance, you had different versions of the robot that might be better for, say, a clinical environment versus an office environment. Are you learning things now as you're seeing the environments that these robots are being uh, tasked with being in now that, that are changing how you're thinking about what you're going to do? It's, it's really about human, right? Where human work, where people work. Yes, the robot might have different things to address the different um, uh, tasks that it's doing. But it still has to move in the space where typically a person does, right? So mm -hmm. when I say working in the, you know, many different things in the workplace is think of that mobility, the autonomous and being able to exist in that space. Mm -hmm. A more yeah. integrated telehealth um, a robot might need, might include other things that a communication robot does not necessarily need. I, I guess I was thinking too about the idea that that um, in the case of physicians and nurses and nurse practitioners and all the other providers we see, they often have very specialized tools that they're using, which some of which are in existing in the environment, you know, sphygmomanometers and and so on and so forth. Do you see that there's a need to integrate those elements of the environment into the behaviors of the robot? Yes, yes, yes. I I, I do agree that there is a continuum. Um, so today. Um, you know, getting, when I said earlier, we believe the teleportation is the first application that eases the adoption. Um, you could continue, uh, imagine the continuum and adding manipulation. Before today, I could tell you one of the things that robotics industry or roboticists like us are always sensitive about how people perceive robots or we've always kind of <laughs> Yeah, you sense absolutely. that defensiveness, right? That, yeah, well, yeah. you know, robots not going to take jobs away. Well, you know what? Robots, just like any technologies, will impact society. The sentiment or, or, or what I'm hearing or what I see, the experience right now, the shift from robots being kind of a threat to being an agent of safety, an agent of collaboration. Right. It's helpful. Well, a robot doesn't have COVID-19. <laughs> yeah, which is a huge advantage. And I want to talk about impact, and, and maybe we do kind of cross that line into the future a little bit around, we got robots, telepresence robots, mobile devices, big data. If this can all be designed in like a human-centered way, like what could the impact of this future be for us? One of the, one of the, the challenges of medicine and it's a, it's a double-edged sword, but is when do you find out that care is needed, right? When do you find out someone is depressed or when do you find out that they have an injury? Uh, when do you find out that they're forming, you know, early cancers? So constantly knowing, uh, and the more care you can do, technology enables us to get deeper care and more of it. Um, and I think that the, the more we do there, there's more of ability to be pervasive about this, while at the same time being very careful about not overdiagnosing, about not violating privacy, about not freaking people out constantly, about being worried about whether or not they're healthy all the time or not. But there is something about, about creating an environment where, where medicine is no longer um, an event and where it's a lifelong part of just how you live. And I also think that, that uh, looking back at something like what Ava's doing with robotics, um, there's a possibility of, you know, 
even just a few years ago, today still, truly, if you want the best specialists in the world, you'll probably have to travel to see them. And it doesn't matter where you are on the planet. You'll probably, if you, if you need that, that um, oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering, you're traveling there to see them. Robotics in general allow us to scale individual human beings in a way that they can't be scaled right now. And it allows us to bring them, to teleport them where they need to be. That also, I just have to jump in because you just got me thinking too about equity and how, you know, hospitals in these rural locations, they do not have the best of the best doctors and they do have a death rate that's different than, you know, and is there yep. actually an opportunity to bring some of those to more rural locations as well? Absolutely. Yeah, to add to to add to Liz's comment here, in fact, one of the early deployment of the teleportation robot into hospitals was deployed in rural areas, rural hospitals. And just think about it. Um, think of stroke, okay? And think of where is that expertise? Typically, it's like we're here in Boston, you have Mass General, or right? They have this massive investment that went into have the best of the best of stroke specialists. But if you're, you know, um, 50 miles away and you walk into a hospital, there's no one has that experience, that expertise. So, and that's very time sensitive, right? A patient that comes in, if it's not diagnosed properly immediately, it could be fatal or it could be very severe. So the deployment of robots, it's bringing that specials to these rural areas when they're needed, where they're needed. There's a lot of technology that's going to come together between the technology, the culture, the process, the acceptance, and the flow of that is going to be uh, what's going to drive. It's going to be right now with COVID-19. I'll just share one quick example um, that goes beyond even telepresence. We have in the Boston area, one of the uh, major research institutions reached out to us and um, wanted to leverage our technology to bring disinfecting robots into mm. the healthcare facilities and what have you. Um, and, and that was driven because, you know, talking about steps, we, we took the first step of being safe, simple, people accepted now is trusted in the workplace, now right. you could deliver the next robot. Uh, what other roles do you think robots can take on in helping us keep healthy? So if you think of the disinfecting robot, I'm just going to use that as an example. It's not just about disinfecting, which is big deal, but now you could have, uh, almost like you could have a certification that the space is disinfected because you have ability to collect that data and map what's been disinfected, what's not, and add that assurance. I mean, we have even hospitality reaching out to us. One of the things they want to have confidence, they want people to be confident when they go in. Yeah, you could say we're clean, but how do I know it's clean, right? But now if you have some of these technologies that giving you the confirmation that it is clean. Yeah, I think I think there are two areas. One which is maybe more directly related to what we're going through right now, which is delivery. So you know, reducing human contact where you don't have to have handoffs, right? It's an indirect health benefit, but it's a, but it's one that may lead to reduction, right? It's just like mask wearing. Fewer pieces of contact you have, the better off we are. The second one, which is a much broader health implication, and it's probably still further off, is things like autonomous vehicles. 
So mm -hmm. one of the promises of autonomous vehicles is to reduce, hopefully, ultimately, the rates of things like uh, car accidents, which is a significant uh, health, it's a health problem. problem. For right. So, <laughs> so uh, I think there's that, um, and there's there's other areas too. But I think I think that there's there's actually a huge number of opportunities for autonomous and agentive and um, and uh, you know augmentative systems, various types of robots, whatever they are. It becomes hard. You actually become hard pressed to think of places where you couldn't add a robot to help. Yeah, exactly. And like, why wouldn't you want it? Yeah, that whole reframing of because we've had a lot of events about robotics, and I'm thinking Liz about our about automation and people is like really worried. But thinking about it in these terms, it's like, well, yeah, I I need that. If we all do, awesome. Thank you so much, Yusuf. This has been great. Thanks for being on. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So. I hope we'll see you and the robot in person <laughs> again soon because we've had a lot of fun. And you're welcome to teleport to our house. office. And <laughs> I would love to. Yeah. In fact, yeah, listeners, be sure to check out Ava Robotics. Uh, their website has all kinds of great information. Uh, and you can even uh, book a, a meeting to try Ava out, which I saw, which is, is really cool. So that's at uh, avarobotics.com. Now for our weekly dose of good design, where we share an example of good design that impacted us or others in a meaningful way. Liz, start us off this week. So I recently found this lifestyle brand and I fell in love with it for so many reasons. Uh, first of all, they talk about and acknowledge the lack of women in engineering, tech, finance, and even politics. And that to combat that, what we really need to be talking about is how kids are being encouraged along gender lines from the time that they you know, can crawl. So this brand, Piccolina Kids, uh, has developed these incredible themes and patterns around things like aviation, outer space, paleontology, construction, all sorts of traditionally male-oriented themes, and incorporated them into their clothing for both boys and girls, but particularly for girls. Beyond that, they feature female leaders and pioneers like Harriet Tubman, Jane Goodall, Malala, and Zaha Hadid with their Trailblazer series, which is actually what first caught my eye. The entire series is designed by incredibly talented female artists who they also celebrate and promote on their website, which I love. Plus, it's a female-owned organization who works with all female-owned manufacturing companies. Wow, that's cool. So when you talk about a brand that's you know authentic, I feel like they really hit the mark. There are probably like 100 other reasons why I love this company, uh, but I, I will stop there. Uh, but I encourage everyone to check it out because oh, yeah. uh, it's a really great example of a brand that's designed with authenticity. Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely check that out. It's so cool. Thank you. Yeah. My weekly dose of good design comes from the New York Times. They continue to create and publish these amazing data visualizations and visual storytelling. And this is another such example. It's called How the Virus Won. And it's one long scrolling website that animates as you scroll down. Uh, and it shows how COVID-19 really exploded in the United States and unfortunately how many of our elected officials pretty much ignored every warning sign at every turn. And uh, so the biggest thing it shows is that there's just there was so much travel happening, even in mid-March, late March, April, even now, and that the traveling is bad. <laughs> so as you scroll down, 
uh, you see these travel patterns kind of like pixelated little tiny dots and uh, those patterns reveal themselves and culminate in these new outbreaks across the country. It's, it's kind of terrifying. Uh, to show how these travel patterns spread the virus, researchers tracked tiny signature genetic mutations in the virus that they could, so they could pinpoint where the virus originally came from. So they could say like, oh, this was a Seattle, uh, COVID, Chicago, Boston, New York, whatever. And then they'd see it in New Orleans. I wonder why people were traveling to New Orleans and lots of other you know, places they can kind of track where they all came from. Obviously COVID-19 is huge and it's so hard for our human brains to understand and accept. But these visual stories and data visualizations like this really help bring it down to that massive scope kind of down to something that we can digest. And that's all design, that's all storytelling. Uh, and so I really got a lot out of it. And it really has me thinking about our data visualization event coming up on July 21st uh, with two professors from Northeastern who are gonna show a lot of COVID-19 related data visualizations. George, you are next. So yeah, so first I, I just, in the same vein, I wanna give a shout out to the COVID-19 tracking, tracking project, which is an amazing set of visualizations. They're pulling in state data. Sometimes it's very hard to get the data and they've been trying to show sort of the truth of where we are with the virus and what's, what's going on. Um, there's a lot of projects out there, but that one in particular stands out uh, in part because it's actually driven by design and it's being driven by journalism. And that combination is just with the New York Times has been really amazing. Um, but I think for me th this week, the, the one I've got uh, is the Quarantine Book Club, which is a, a product of uh, Mule Design, Mike Montero and, and Erica Hall. And it's great. It's just great in so many ways. So right now it's Pride Month. They're bringing in authors who are representing people from all over the spectrum. They're bringing in fiction authors. They're bringing in uh, political writers. They're bringing in just great thinkers. And what I love about it from a design perspective is it's a really wonderful way to create out of something as kind of low rent as Zoom and teleconferencing. They've created this really deep, really rich experience of, of engaging with uh, authors for, who are thinking the biggest thoughts you can imagine. And I really appreciate that, that they've taken this moment where community and conversation may have been kind of narrowed down to some really just, you know, who's healthy, who's not, you know, what are we doing? You're locked in your home. And they've tried to open up people's eyes to a broader view of the world in a time when things might be kind of you know, closing down a little bit. And so I really, really appreciate what they've done with Quarantine Book Club. And, and uh, I'm excited about it. And I, I, I think it's gonna be one of the best things that I've seen that's gonna grow wholly new out of this yeah. whole crisis. That's cool. That's a very cool program. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. And I, I just always love these weekly doses because there you go, three like totally different types of good design. Uh, so thank you both. Thank you again to George White and Yusuf Saleh for joining us today. Be sure to check out our episode page for links to some of the things we discussed. And hey, maybe take that robot for a spin on Ava Robotics website. Yes, and be sure to check out our website where you can visit our We Design Online exhibition and get tickets for our upcoming Design Museum live events. Just visit designmuseumeverywhere.org. As always, we'd love to hear from you on social media. Like us, follow us on Twitter. We're at design underscore museum. On Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. And on Facebook and LinkedIn, you can find us by searching Design Museum Everywhere. And be sure to subscribe to Design is Everywhere, so we're always in your feed. And while you're at it, please rate us and leave a review. It only takes 30 seconds, and it really helps us grow our audience for the new show. We'd really love that. This episode was written by me, Sam Aquilano, and produced by Ryan Flom. We're edited by David Green, and our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. 
For Liz Pollock and the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thank you, and we'll talk next week. Bye, everyone.